0: Giant Robot Smashing into Other Giant Robots.
1: This is the Giant Robot Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pitel, and with me today is Alex Cornell, interface designer, co-founder of Cocoon, previously the lead designer of Facebook Live. Alex, thanks for joining me. Yeah, super happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. So uh, for folks listening, just to paint a word picture, you're in San Francisco. Yeah, I'm
0: in uh, San Francisco. I've been here for the last almost 13 years now.
1: And you have done a lot of things, the Facebook live work as well as mm-hmm. co-founded Uber conference. Yep. But let's start with what you're doing now. Sure. A friend
0: of mine and I left Facebook in September of last year and started a new company called Cocoon, which is been really exciting to be working on for the last year or so. And I guess at the high level, it's an app for the most important people in your life. And we're not quite launched yet, but we're getting there and we're really excited to uh, to start talking more about it soon,
1: hopefully. <laughs> so would you describe Cocoon as a social network?
0: No, I wouldn't. Um, and I mm-hmm. think uh, in that sense, there's a lot of talk about large social networks and small social networks, especially when you start talking about people that are really close to you, like your family or really close uh-huh. friends. And I think there are a lot of effects of it that a network can have on the way you interact online. Like I think the most basic one is if, if you are part of an asymmetrical network, you kind of have to manage multiple identities at once. So even if it's a very small network, I have to think about How am I portraying myself to you, to my mom, and maybe to my wife? And those are all three different kind of like versions potentially of myself. And that changes the way I see and post and that kind of thing. So when you don't create a network and it's a perfectly symmetrical group of people, the way that people interact changes a lot. And I think uh, that's an important part of the way we think about
1: it. I would probably ask this question, even if you didn't previously work at Facebook, (laughs) but like obviously... Facebook is huge and, you know, it has so many users and that kind of thing. So how do you get over that hurdle when deciding to do something new Hmm. in even just a tangential space as a founder?
0: it's definitely interesting, and I think going from I guess the outside to the inside of Facebook and now back out again, it does change your perspective, I think especially when it comes to scale, you know obviously Facebook is operating at such a massive scale when it comes to the amount of people that are on the platform, and you get a little bit desensitized to that scale when you 're there for long enough, you know and so when we launch a new product and you're talking immediately about millions of people if you're used to working on a startup when you're used to talking about you know tens of people it's a completely right. different ball game and you do kind of recalibrate as a human, you know, because there's no way a, a, a real person can really even comprehend that level of scale at a certain point. And so you kind of just have to think hard about it if you if you want to, because otherwise you'll just get lost in the numbers. Mm-hmm. But I will say it's it's nice now being on the outside and starting from zero, because at Facebook, you never truly start from zero. You know, you've got an active user base already, and the company has found product market fit and all that. And so when you're on uh, starting from total scratch, it's uh, every single new user is very exciting you know and i, mm-hmm. I kind of like that just because it's really tangible
1: so you mentioned you and your co-founder were both at facebook and left to do cocoon are you both designers uh no uh, i'm
0: a designer and then uh, sachin uh, my co-founder uh, was a product manager at facebook and he's mm-hmm. got a little bit more technical background than i do too so we were able to you know
1: get off the ground with just the two of us which was really helpful so, how did you know it was the right time to leave and do
0: cocoon? It's a good question. I think when I, I there used to be a survey at Facebook uh that they would run you know every six months or so asking how long you plan to stay at the company and for a long time, I was there about uh three and a half four years I'd say probably for the first two years, I would answer forever to that survey like i mm-hmm. I really left my time there. And always just kind of saw myself there for for a really, really long time. And then towards the end of my time there, I think what changed was I started to think a lot about opportunity cost, And that's a pretty natural process for somebody to run all the time. Like, would I rather be doing this or that? And most people are pretty good at that. And I think what changed for me was I wasn't really thinking about efficiency. And I've written a little bit about this before, but Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll rehash it, which is basically just like... I was treating one year more at Facebook the exact same as one year at a new thing, you know, in, in this case, Cocoon. And in reality, I think those two things aren't equal in terms of what I myself will be able to output and be proud of and affect people with, because ultimately that's sort of like my goal is to make things that are useful for people. And even though the scale of Facebook is so much larger than probably anything will ever do the amount of time that it can take to do something is quite long. And this isn't like implicating Facebook in any way. It's just the the nature of a massive company. It's like things take a very long time to do, even very, very small things, you know. And so when I really thought hard about that and I was thinking, you know, what's life going to be like in one year, two years? eventually that equation stopped making sense for me and i thought even if the scale is slightly smaller the speed is going to be so much faster on the outside and i think once you realize that you kind of realize you kind of have to leave that day cuz then like every day is <laughs> is that much more costly it's almost like a black hole or something you know right that was the main thing that turned in my mind was just that concept of efficient
1: opportunity cost was this idea of Cocoon something that you were already talking with your co-founder about, or was it something new that you created together after after you left?
0: It was definitely the latter. And I think um, the most enjoyable parts, I think, was conceptualizing what we wanted to do. I th- you know, We learned during our time at Facebook that we really liked working together, that we worked together really well. And so we relied on that when we left to... Yeah. I mean, kind of going out on a limb, I think, you know, like leaving and deciding to start a company together, but not having a plan of what Uh you're going to do. I generally would tell people not to do that. I don't think that usually is a good idea, but in our case, I think we both felt so confident in our ability to just kind of like work through problems together. And we feel the same on a lot of like larger issues in terms of what we would want to work on. And, uh, Running that process when we got out actually was pretty fast in terms of how quickly we came to Cocoon. How did you do it? I'll credit specifically Notion, uh, the mm-hmm. app, to give them a shout out. I'm sure they don't need any more shout outs, but, <laughs> but I had never heard of Notion before last September. And we were kind of looking for because, you know, when you're at a company like Facebook, all of your software questions are answered. You know, it's like, uh-huh. what do you use for docs? What do you use for calendar? Everything is is there. And so when you're on the outside, you have the opportunity to think about, okay, what do we want to use for note taking or or calendar or email or whatever. And the two of us work, The same, which is that we like to talk for a very long time together. And as we're doing that, we take copious notes. And then at the end of the day or the next day, we can go back through the notes and pull out what's interesting. And so we were really looking for a tool that would help us do that. And Notion, I think uh, Sachin had found it before and we tried it. And it happened just to map really well to our style of brainstorming, which is literally, it's like six hour conversation. And then like, imagine how many notes that would be, Uh you know, and, uh, it helped us stay organized. And so we started, um, I guess the simplest way to explain it would be like brainstorming about what to brainstorm about. And then that's at the highest level. And then you just kind of work your way down from there. But yeah, we went really wide, thought about everything from shipping containers to, photo sharing you know to every every cliche you could think of to every weird niche space you can think of and then just whittled it down it was a really like a a tight funnel i guess Mm -hmm. in that way
1: and i assume but uh, correct me if i'm wrong that you didn't raise investment or anything like that at that point this is just the two of you working together saying we're gonna work together
0: yeah and i think that's an interesting question for entrepreneurs these days is like, at what point do you raise some money? And I think, uh, for us, even though we were really confident in our ability to work together, we didn't have any ideas. And Mm -hmm. I think like we wanted to make sure that we had something concrete before we did anything like that. We, we did eventually apply and get into YC. And that was like our first kind of like serious step in the direction of building this out.
1: Yeah. So you, you have a bunch of ideas, you're whittling it down, how did you know yeah. or decide that the idea behind Cocoon was the one that you should mm-hmm.
0: do? If I recall, it was, uh, it was still kind of during the process of going really wide and still thinking about what to think about when we had come upon this. And I think that, you know, over time, I have worked on lots of different things. The first startup I was at Uber Conference, you know, we were making enterprise communication software, And, you know, we had started really distant from that doing, uh, food reviews with a company called Nosh, which is no longer with us, but you know, like I was super excited about that. And I learned to get super excited about Uber conference, like, you know, the space that we were in. And so this time I was like, I want to make sure that whatever we work on is really, really like deeply, personally meaningful to me. Mm -hmm. And I guess just life experience over the last five to 10 years, the thing that keeps coming back to me is my family. And I kind of mean that in every sense of the word, you know, like my immediate family, like my mom and my sister and my wife, but then also just like the only like 10 to 15 people that I find like are really, really, truly important to me. And I thought there could be really no more exciting and fulfilling thing than to work to better those relationships, because that's ultimately like what we do every day anyway. Um, so like if we could build software that would really help with that, that really resonated. you know so then when you compare that to some of the other ideas that we had talked about, I think for both of us, like where we were at in our life and just kind of what we find important, it was really hard to think about working on anything else just because nothing quite leveled up to the, the resonance of the problem in the same way that Cocoon did. I mean, it, uh, there are plenty of really important problems to work on, but I think like mm-hmm. it's really good to know and be able to identify what is personally going to fulfill you. And I think uh, for both of us, it was pretty clear that this was the, this
1: was the winner in that regard. So once you settle on the idea, okay, this is what we're going to continue to push on, what did you do next?
0: Well, lots more talking, lots more <laughs> writing. Uh, literally, like if I were to ever give like a process post or anything, it would be really boring because most <laughs> of the time
1: it's like 90%
0: words. Are you writing? Um, Are you,
1: were you doing any sketches?
0: Uh, no, but eventually, like, I'd be curious to hear what you all do for prototyping, but mm-hmm. I do or learned origami um, while I was at Facebook and, and really, really enjoy working in it. So it pretty quickly, when we started talking about what the experience could look like, I was working in origami just to kind of like help us have something tangible to to refer to, right. even though we're like, we weren't talking about the actual idea. It's just more like, oh, it kind of like like this, like, what would it feel like if it did this? Mm-hmm. And it's really just helpful. It's like a
1: conversation aid. Right. Do you guys do uh, a lot of prototyping
0: as part of your process?
1: We do. We're driving very quickly towards a prototype that we can test with real potential users. And we do that right. in a, in a day usually. And so yeah, yeah, we're yeah. usually using Envision or something like that. Oh, cool. Yeah. The fidelity is an interesting question because
0: mm-hmm. I had a friend yesterday I was talking to who is not a designer, but has an idea and wants to build a prototype. And, you know, he's even pre-envisioned kind of like Mm -hmm. in the string together drawn wireframes mode. And for whatever reason, I mean, I I think there's pros and cons to this, but I've only ever really been able to prototype at high fidelity with like what would appear to be a real design, Mm -hmm. which as you know, like that can be super distracting because then you're thinking about fonts and colors and layout right. and you should be thinking about what happens next. kind of. But yeah, that's just how I work. And so I've always, always really had fun with origami in that way. Cause you can really quickly make something feel like a native app, yeah. which is really
1: helpful. And so did you do anything early on to make sure that you had something that people would actually, besides the two of you would want to use? Mm-hmm. Oh
0: yeah, you know I think uh, one thing that you get really good at at a company like Facebook is really like bolstering kind of the the really important but kind of non-concrete design aspects of design. You know, so whether that's research surveys or talking to people and doing interviews, we did a lot of that. And Sachin in particular is quite good at this. And I remember early on a lot of surveys and kind of trying to hone in on what people were looking for when it came to intimate relationships, you know, and and just learning more about the way people think of family and broadening our perspectives as much as we could. The great thing is when you're working with something like this, it's like everybody has somebody who they would consider family, whether it's their actual family mm-hmm. or really close friends. And so you can talk to literally anybody about, about this and and you can obviously talk to your own family and That's been really great. I always found it a little bit tricky with Uber Conference that since I'm not Mm -hmm. really on conference calls every day, you know, it's a little harder to put myself in that position. But with this, it's like I am a brother and a son and a husband. And it's like I can think about those relationships all the time.
1: Yeah, it's it's a great sort of hack or trick to be building a product that you yourself are a legitimate user of, not one that you fooled yourself into thinking you are, but like legitimately.
0: When you work with entrepreneurs or companies, do you ever find something that's like so amazing? You're so into it that you're like, oh, shoot, should we just all
1: like do this thing? (laughs)
0: Because at some point you kind of have to say goodbye, I would think, to your
1: clients, right? Uh, We do. We help them build teams along the way. Um, But we really like, we've been doing this for 16 years and Uh we're pretty successful. So there hasn't really been that draw to like join a client. We like consulting. We like the business we have. But we have built products for designers and developers. We've built products of uh-huh. our own that we've then gone uh, on to cool. build and grow and to eventually sell. Mm-hmm. Right on. So that's the outlet that we've that we've taken along the years.
0: Got it. And I'm I'm assuming that the name Giant Robot does not have a relationship to the old store called Giant Robot that sold like Anime and that no, kind of thing, in fact we, relation? No. Though? Okay.
1: The, so the name of the company is Thoughtbot, but we used the word giant robot and, and giant robot smashing other giant robots for our yeah. blog and our podcast and everything. And we didn't know at all about giant robot until I think maybe on mm-hmm. Twitter or someone somewhere somewhere, <laughs> somewhere mm-hmm. along the way, it was like took a picture of the store and sent yeah. it to us, and we we're like, yeah. look at that. So
0: It was the coolest. I think they're gone now, I think but so. Yeah. they used to have one in San Francisco and I would take the bus there like every two weeks just to look around. It was it was a great place. So huge, huge fan of this, <laughs> the name in general.
1: So when you're building a product for yourself, that goes a long way. One concern yeah. I always have is, oh, are we cutting too many quarters? Because we've definitely mm-hmm. done that and we yeah. see clients do it too, where it's like, no, I, right. I know this. And you make an assumption and turns out that assumption is wrong for other people. Has there been anything like that in either Cocoon or the other products that you've worked on?
0: It's definitely something that we try to keep a really strong awareness of. And I think there being two of us in the very, very early days, it was good just because we have Mm -hmm. slightly different approaches to things. Like I think I and maybe to a fault, sometimes more intuition driven. And Sachin is really good at balancing intuition with like numerical evidence, you know, and data and research results and that kind of thing. So we do balance each other well in that way. And then I think it's impossible to work at a company like Facebook and not have this hammered into you just because like, it's not, hopefully not lost on anyone working there, how massively diverse Uh the user base is. And so you just kind of have to take yourself out of it in a company like that, which is great. Then when you're in in a very, very small company, because if you have any of that instinct left at all, that residual amount is probably more than, (laughs) you know, you would need anyway. So it's like the amount you need at Facebook would always be more than you need. uh, Well, you know, hopefully eventually it's the same, but that is really helpful. And I think a a good way to just kind of keep ourselves in check is having that
1: experience. So what strengths do you think being a designer gives you as a founder? Oh, that's a good question. And it's funny to think about, I remember maybe like
0: four or five years ago when, you know, designers as founders or just designers (laughs) in the early days of a startup was kind of like this hot topic, you know, I kind of miss those days just because it was a funny, I guess, beat on the inside of that experience. But yeah, I think uh, there's practical, very, very quick and tangible benefits like being able to prototype that, you know, immediately come to mind. Mm -hmm. That kind of thing is immensely valuable. And I think in particular, just making things feel real Mm -hmm. very quickly. So like, you know, I can very quickly make what feels like a real native app to a person and then make a video about that app that looks like a marketing video for a real thing. Mm -hmm. And then you can just like very, very quickly get people's actual reaction as if it was a real thing way faster than you would be able to if you had to keep saying like, okay, so like pretend that it looks cool and pretend (laughs) that it's moving. And like, just imagine that the camera's there and you take a picture, you know? And I think if you do that once or twice when you're talking to somebody, the magic, the spell's gone. And then you can't really trust their feedback anymore because they're stuck looking at like, why am I like, okay, but is the camera, which way is the camera facing? What's happening? You know, that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. So, you know, I think that's a, just a really practical benefit of having a designer early in, in the process. And I think beyond that, I th- sometimes question whether or not designers have really any other unique uh, <laughs> abilities when it comes to thinking or, or anything like that. I I find that, uh, Everybody's, you know, just as good at doing that kind of stuff mm-hmm. as we are. So, I think that the first one that comes to mind yeah. is probably just that magical ability quickly to make things feel real.
1: Are there downsides or weaknesses that you think in particular you have because you're you're a designer? For me personally, the my kind of instinct
0: to very quickly go to high fidelity can sometimes be a weakness because then I get stuck thinking of something a certain way. So, the, you know, the pros and cons there. One very obvious one, I suppose, would just be ultimately you are only at best half of what is required to build the thing, you know? And so I've always sort of lamented my own inability to actually code something. And I think part of the reason is when you are using a tool like origami, which is like heavily logic-based and is like 55% of the Mm -hmm. way to actual code, it's frustrating to be like so deep in this tool that is so powerful and it can do all this stuff, but ultimately like not useful, you know, yeah. like in the in the sense of, like, releasing it or anything like that. Do you that. think we'll get there eventually? I mean, it certainly often feels like it when you look mm-hmm. at the most advanced prototyping tools like Framer and Origami that are, like, really, really close to coding, especially Framer. Right. And I don't think so. But the one thing I I will say that has happened that I don't think people enjoy or at least talk about enough is, you know, one thing that these tools, these really advanced tools have done is allow the conversation, the handoff, the collaboration between design and engineering to be a lot more effective in the sense that like, if I can build it in origami, I know for sure it can be built natively, you know, and if I can't, and I can't think of how to do it, there's probably a good reason, like most Mm -hmm. likely there's a good reason why it might not be possible. Like logically, it doesn't make sense, you know? And so I've found that even though we still need that handoff and that, you know, I wouldn't call it wasted work, you know, somebody needs to redo what I've built. I think that doing it once quickly in a design tool has made that eventual construction in a real native app construction, like way faster and more effective and interesting. Mm -hmm. So But yeah, to your question, I don't think so. And I I get frustrated as a designer. I'm sure you all might as well. Like all of these tools are kind of trying to turn into one another, you know, so like the prototyping tools are trying to build design functionality. And then like Figma and Sketch are trying to build prototyping functionality. (laughs) And I'm like, of course, it would be great to be in one tool, but I've just so far not seen that done very well.
1: Do you guys have a design stack when it comes to like what you use for static? And then we're using framer a lot more, but then there's a big transition now from sketch Mm -hmm. to Figma to Figma big transition. So almost every member of the design team, people are free to choose whatever tool that they think is best for the job. Right. So independently (laughs) groups of people are just moving over and Mm -hmm. doing all new work in Figma. It's wild. I did the same thing like a month ago Mm -hmm. and I
0: like didn't notice it, right. you know, like I, at first the mouse, the mouse looks different and that kind of threw me off for a little mm-hmm. while and they in, invert my scroll direction and I had to change it. But like beyond that, you couldn't tell me I was in a different tool and I love it so far, you know, and it reminds me of when, like when I got to Facebook, I was still designing in uh Photoshop and After Effects. And so then, you know, I switched to sketch and mm-hmm. origami and that was an incredible, level up yep. you know and then i kind of feel that way now too with figma although it's like the functionality is more you know one-to-one but it does overall feel like a a better process for us actually the main thing the reason that i even considered switching because i was pretty happy with sketch was we were having trouble keeping the team in sync in terms of like what's the latest design yeah. all that kind of stuff and we used we tried using abstract <laughs> i was um, about and to and say you know, the tried- exact same
1: thing so we are, were yeah. we're using abstract, but once you start to use it, you realize, oh well, Figma can give us all of this stuff.
0: Yeah. And it's I actually would love to to talk to their team more about this just because I don't really understand why I would want all of this complexity around version management when I think maybe it's a scale mm-hmm. thing, because our team is quite small. There are five of us. So, you know, I don't need to worry about an entire design team maintaining a document. Mm-hmm. And maybe at that point a GitHub like repository makes sense. But it felt like either dropbox should just do what, what they were doing or figma like you said just kind of already does it inherently uh-huh. so i had a really uncomfortable in between between sketch and figma with abstract but i i still chalk it up really to me maybe choosing it at the wrong time of our life cycle but i don't know i didn't it was only about a month that i tried it so uh-huh. but you guys did as well so that makes me feel a little bit yeah, better yeah and
1: i think to your point it's all about sort of philosophy. Abstract comes at it from we are version control for sketch files. Yeah, they're going to look at that and they're going to say, well, we're going to basically have a Git based approach. Yeah, and the way we talk about things yeah. and everything. And so when you come at it from that perspective, because that's the tool that they're creating, mm-hmm. and maybe you know this this can be a problem in general with creating products is that yeah the core job to be done there. That is really important to designers is the design, Mm -hmm. right? But when you peel off a piece and you say, well, the job we're solving is version control (laughs) for sketch files, Mm -hmm. you come up with a, a solution, which is very, you know, either technical or solving the wrong job or in the wrong way.
0: Right, and you're tempted then to add sort of as Dropbox has mm-hmm. over the years, like a lot more features, sort that sort of bolster that job that you're doing. But really, like in, um, it felt kind of more like one of those product versus a feature yeah. type yep. situations, where it's like ultimately what I want is to be able to say to an engineer or to anybody, here's the latest yep. and. You know if the tool just does that inherently, that is obviously way better than having like an entire other system that sort of lives on top mm-hmm. of it. I mean even as uh, something as interesting as like, "Hey, I just want to get my sketch file. I want to email it to to somebody else outside of the organization. I just would like to access my sketch file. To do that in the abstract framework, you have to like dive deep, deep, deep into a folder structure that you don't even know exists, mm-hmm. you know, because they're sort of like hijacking your, the way the saving is happening and all this. And so something as simple as that, when I, when I sort of learned how it was intended to be used, I was like, gosh, I, this is not at all what I, what I want. Like, cause I could send you Figma files now with a right. link and it's right. done,
1: yeah. you know? Yeah. It's really powerful.
0: Yeah. The reason I say this is cause I was super anti figma when I heard about it I was like the concept of multiple mouses flying around and like multiplayer design I was like leave me out of this I don't want anything to do with that and I was really happy to be proven mm-hmm. wrong like I really like it as a tool and it's been really helpful for us as a company and my fears of like mouses flying around <laughs> as I try to do my work is obviously not not come to fruition cuz that doesn't make any yeah. sense but that was what I was worried about
1: so what did you have in terms of your product when you applied to yc and and when you started yc
0: yc was a really great forcing function for us when it came to our thinking so you know we had a really i guess i'd call it robust but pretty loose brainstorming process so you know i mentioned how we kind of work mm-hmm. you know there's there's a lot of that's getting generated in that process like that and so the concept of applying to yc came up pretty late. It was probably almost exactly a year ago. And I think the deadline for the next one is coming up. So you know, we had like a week basically. And to hone everything that we had down in that amount of time was really helpful because the application, the questions are actually really good. Uh, The guy I was talking to yesterday who I mentioned, another entrepreneur, he's still thinking about whether he wants to apply, but I told him to just answer the questions regardless because it'll force you to think about uh, what you want to do in a much more controlled and really helpful way. And so when we applied, I think timing wise, we didn't actually yet have the specific idea for Cocoon yet, but we had like the really high level moving Mm -hmm. parts about what we wanted to do, how we think about building products and like what our process is like. And I think that combined with our background coming out of Facebook and sort of understanding social software at a deeper level, maybe than the average person was interesting enough for them to let us in, but it was between when we first applied and when we heard back that we thought of Cocoon, there was was like very weird timing. We applied with no real idea, but like a general kind of perspective. And then before we heard back, we're like, actually, look, our perspective has generated this beautiful idea, you know, like, so please include that in our, in your decision, you know, and you, I remember you have to make a video mm-hmm. as well. And all of these things are just really helpful ways to force you to think about different parts of the product that you might not have yet. Cause you know they get applications at all, all stages, right. of course.
1: And I could be wrong, but YC specifically talks about That they're focused just as much on the team as on the actual startup idea itself, right?
0: That's right. And and I would say, like, as they should be, the amount of people that were in our class that pivoted to a different idea, I, I don't even know how many people it was. It was so many, you know, and I think some of that is because you know maybe the idea was depending on the state it was in it like needed to be changed but mostly i think they have confidence first and foremost in the people that they're letting in and their ability to make something good and they're not tied to the idea any more than they think you should be but it was interesting i mean we definitely like it sometimes felt like the odd one out not changing <laughs> our idea but i you know i think at the core of it as i was saying before like having a really really strong conviction in the problem that you're solving and the eventual outcome that you hope for the world we, that we've always felt like extreme confidence in that and then the solution itself is sort of like that's what we'll iterate through, you know, we probably don't have it right now, but we hope that we eventually will. That was the distinction that I saw in other entrepreneurs, both in and out of YC, is like if you don't have conviction in the problem, then yeah, you're probably gonna mm-hmm. pivot at some point, or like the chances that your solution is also extremely good is less likely. But if you're really, really bought in on the problem you're solving, then changing around your solution is just part of the process.
1: So Cocoon is not fully launched to the public yet, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We're still, you know, we've been working on it for a
0: while, but luckily since we're users of it, like we, I think we've always felt like we'll know when it's ready to go. We're almost there, but yeah. So by that, I,
1: I assume you mean like you have something that you're able to use internally. Yeah. Do you have other beta testers too?
0: We do, yeah, and we we've been trying to do mm-hmm. that from the the earliest of uh, basically as soon as we possibly could. Actually, the probably the biggest thing, um, and I am sure this will this will resonate with you guys as well, is like when you are thinking about a, an experience that is going to be sort of inherently multi generational mm-hmm. to some degree, you know. So, like a lot of the people using it are not thirty five years old. You really have to think about usability and a level of obviousness in in your interface in a completely different way and I knew that going in and I had kind of gotten used to that at Facebook when you're you have to basically design every layout a billion different ways make it work in russian sideways upside down and like you know in the dark mm-hmm. or whatever you know I'd gotten used to that but I think when we started doing early testing it, it really reminded me like how much more clear i needed to be and how anti-clever I needed to be, you know, like as a designer, I feel like we sort of always try to one up each other in terms of how clever or interesting or beautiful, delightful, you name it, our designs are. And I've tried to steer away from that, even though it kind of sometimes hurts my eyes. (laughs) I'm like, I know this is going to be better. I just know then we'll see that proven I think like the the best example of this because everybody has built a tab bar before, but every designer knows that icon plus text is better than icon only or text only. Like we all know this. I, I feel like that's like a, a thing that has been proven to be true enough times that everyone sort of accepts it. But like I can't look right. at a tab bar with text in it and think it looks better right. than one without. Like I just prefer the ones without text. But in our case, I was like, gosh, I can't under good conscience not have text down there when I know for sure not everyone's going to understand what these glyphs mean, you know? That's a really good example. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's my favorite because it like kills me inside. It's Mm -hmm. like a visual, you know, I just, I wish that everything was aligned and clean like Instagram, but yeah, it's a tough one. And there are plenty of other examples, you know, like I used to love force touch and I'm really sad they got rid of force touch. And as a designer, I always wanted to use force touch. I was like, Oh my God, we have this whole other layer of interaction we can use. This is amazing. You know, and at Facebook, there was almost like a joke, you know, if you'd propose doing anything with force touch, it'd be like, well, obviously that's not viable, you know, cause no one knows it exists. And I think we've tried to work with cocoon in a really kind of, uh, I guess, strict way when it comes to the design in terms of it just being like immediately understandable. And I still think we actually have a ways to go. There's some things where I'm like,
1: people will figure it out and people (laughs) won't figure it out. So (laughs) you've mentioned a couple of times you, you started Uber conference almost 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. So how are things different now, you know, on any Mm -hmm. metric between building a new thing today and building Uber conference?
0: Uh, I think the one that comes to mind first is just the, I, I don't know if I would call it like the support structure, cause that sort of implies like emotional support or something, but just like when you think about being a startup, what you have available to you to help you accomplish your goal now versus back then is dramatically different. And that is just a function of other startups being created, you know, like notion, for example, that's a really helpful tool for us. Didn't exist 10 years ago.
1: I think every you know, single tool that we named along this way Maybe Sketch did. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, Uh, Maybe not. I don't, don't, yeah. (laughs) This was 2011,
0: 2010. I don't think so. Um, But yeah, exactly. Like those tools didn't exist. And, you know, when you start a company back then, when you start thinking about fundraising or you start thinking about healthcare, you know, these things, you had to kind of go through like the manual Mm -hmm. way back then. And now it's like healthcare. Great. I'm going to use Gusto payroll. I'm going right. to use Gusto. You know, it's like there's a, there's literally a startup for every single aspect of your business. In some cases, ones that you don't need, like, uh, like that you actually could do yourself, like mm-hmm. incorporating, you know, like we used a tool to help us incorporate, but like that process is actually pretty straightforward, you know? So I think that's one of the biggest things is that Actually, in a lot of cases, some of these would have been actual jobs, you know, like that you would need to hire for that now you can get away with offloading some of that to some of these startups. So I think in that way, it's never been easier to make a company making something good is is still as hard as it's ever been. And I think maybe that's the other thing that's very different is like the saturation, especially in social, like back then you could make an app that was about photo sharing and no one was going to mm-hmm. roll their eyes, you know, no one's going to be like, well, that's, that's already solved, you know, or like uh, our first app was about sharing what you were eating and what you thought of specific meals versus the restaurant. And like that concept of like checking into a restaurant, taking pictures of your food was still, I mean, maybe a little bit obnoxious even then, but like it was, mm-hmm. it was not like uh tired in the same way that, you know, a lot of these more social ideas can sound now. I mean, I think we were in our YC class, we were one of maybe three, two or three social apps. Literally everything else is B2B mm-hmm. or, you know, some kind of SaaS thing. And that's a big difference too. I, I felt like it was a little bit more wide open yeah. back then than it is now. How are you different now than you were then? Probably the the biggest difference would have been my time at Facebook. I think hammering into me a lot of good habits that I didn't really have, you know, like at Uber conference, that was my first kind of like real job as, as an interface designer and at a startup. And so like really learning on the go in terms of like managing people eventually and doing research at all. You know, like I didn't In the early days, like, didn't do a lot of that. Like, we started doing it towards the end, but in the beginning, it's like as a kid out of school, I didn't really have those processes at all. So, I think working at a big company, it's not for everybody, but for me, it did really, really kind of like fill in, I think, a lot of the holes that I had as a professional uh, when it comes to just everything from working with other people to communicating. Probably the skill I felt strongest with leaving facebook was my ability to communicate my ideas to a lot of people and i mean my ideas like you know in terms of mm-hmm. what we should work on and that kind of thing those things changed but probably at the most fundamental level like when i was that age which would have been like 24 23 like my one goal in life was to become a famous musician <laughs> or just mm-hmm. famous you know like i really desired that as a as a younger person and like to have a lot of people know who I was and like see or listen or use my work. And now I, I really don't care about that. And in some ways actually like really don't want to seek that out in any way.
1: Well, you've made a huge mistake coming on this podcast then.
0: Yeah. I I, I definitely (laughs) recognize the the irony saying that while like talking in public, but it's not, I mean, I think in this case, like I like having conversations about this. And so it's sort of like it's less about like getting my name out there and more just like, I like the idea of you guys doing this podcast for people to listen to and like, think about interesting things. And I get a lot of value out of podcasts in, in like niche spaces that I'm interested in. So I think of it more just like contributing to that and less about like, oh, I hope I get a couple of new followers or whatever mm-hmm. it is, you know, but that'll change. That'll change you. Like if you're looking at everything through the lens of like, how do I increase my profile? And then that goes away entirely. It's like, you're a pretty different person after that, I think. And uh, it's definitely a lot more relaxing to not think about (laughs) anymore. But yeah, I mean, you guys run a podcast, so I'm sure like part of that is getting the name out there and right. Like there's aspects of that. I'm sure it
1: is. Um, The main thing is that we, we love this and we want to share it with as many people as possible. That's the main thing. It's why I do what I do. I love to create great products and I care a lot about process. And so I'm always trying to find better ways of Mm -hmm. working and then sharing that with as many people as possible. And when you do that, I think if you're not trying, you're you're more likely to be more successful Mm because if you try too hard to be popular, Mm -hmm. to be famous, it doesn't always work because you're focused less on doing great things.
0: Yeah, Definitely. I think one thing I struggle with, or at least try to maintain some awareness of is like, especially when you're running your own business as we are now, it's like, there's an unfortunate reality that the louder we can be yeah. in public, you know, like the more people we can reach with our, our internet voices, like the more people will know about our business, you know? So for example, when we were trying to hire Early on, Sachin wrote a really, really great job description, and I took uh, photos of our office, and we put together a really nice package, and then like sent it out onto the internet waves. And I think like we were fortunate to have mm-hmm. like a large enough following on the internet that those pieces of content traveled really far, and ultimately mm-hmm. like got us our first hires. You know, and so I have to recognize that like that there's a huge benefit there to having at least some presence. And I think I sort of struggle with, like, being aware of that and, like, the good that can come of it, but then also, like, trying not to care about it and optimize for it. And it's like, I, ultimately, sometimes I don't really trust myself yeah. in terms of yep. how I'm even thinking about it, you know? So, I, I think uh, it's hard hard thing to
1: really rectify in your own mind. So I want to go back to something that you said in passing at the beginning of the show. It stuck out at me and it might be a good spot to wrap up on. And it sounds like maybe they don't do it anymore, but they sent out a survey at Facebook about how long you plan to stay at the company on a regular basis for the whole company.
0: Yeah, yeah. So um, the company runs, I think it's biannual surveys about Mm -hmm. how you feel about everything, you know, from your manager to the product you work on to the company itself, And they ask you everything about like, uh, you know, are you happy with how transparent leadership is? And, Mm -hmm. you know, I can't remember all the specific questions, but I I remember that one about how long are you going to stay here? Because I remember feeling like tremendous comfort thinking like, yeah, what if I just work here forever? You know? And especially early on, I felt that really strongly. And you know, I actually don't know if I ever was able to answer it another way because I think I probably That's left. what I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you when that <laughs> yeah.
1: changed. Did you answer it truthfully? Yeah. But maybe you didn't get the answer I, re-
0: <laughs> I definitely would have answered it truthfully. I, and I think I, I might have had maybe one more survey before I left. But it's funny because, I mean... It- in like five to 10 years, people will say like, yeah, we, we left Facebook in 2018. And people will be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that was when like Facebook was having a lot of trouble in the press and all this kind of thing. And as I mentioned, you know, like the reasons that made me leave were really more personal mm-hmm. and just about like what I optimize for in my own life and work. And hopefully it's no surprise. But like the broader narrative around the company is, I would say, at the risk of being controversial, largely overblown especially, in, and I can say this with certainty, just because I work there in terms of the mindset of the people working there. I think if you know truthfully what's happening, uh, you're less affected by the way other people kind of paint it to be. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you know, sometimes people ask me or say like, oh yeah, that must make sense. You left because of whatever name your scandal, you know, mm-hmm. but for me that it wasn't about that. And I was happy to come out of it with that framework of thinking about opportunity cost in a really more comprehensive way. So that's been, that's been really helpful.
1: Cool. Well, Alex, thank you for stopping by the show and and sharing everything that you've been working on. And I really wish you and Cocoon the best of luck with hopefully a launch sometime. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Sometime. Sometime (laughs) in the feet. That's the the normal startup answer. We will, we
0: will one day launch. Yes.
1: (laughs) If people want to find out more or get in touch with you or, or follow along Mm -hmm. to find out about that launch when it happens, where are all the best places for them to do that?
0: Alex Cornell, just about everywhere. Mm-hmm. Alex, normal way and Cornell, like the college. Um, Twitter is probably where I would boast about that stuff first. And it's probably the most reliable way to, to hear about what we're working on.
1: Awesome. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this and every other episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at host at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at cbytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Mabarski. Thanks for listening and see you next time this podcast was brought to you by thoughtbot we are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product with local studios in boston new york san francisco austin london and raleigh durham let's build something great together